welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Priya Baskaran, Assistant Professor of Law at American University Washington College of Law. We will discuss her draft article, Flint, Appalachia, and the Green New Deal, Water Justice in America's Forgotten Places. So welcome to the show, Priya. Thank you so much, Brian. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, great. And I'm so glad to have you on, especially because this paper touches on issues that are very relevant to the school where I teach, University of Kentucky, because of course, you know, we're at least adjacent to to Appalachia as well. Um, Priya, I mean, I wonder if for listeners who might not be so familiar with rural and geographic justice-related issues. You could start by talking a little bit about what you mean by a geographically disadvantaged space and why you think that's a useful concept for thinking about inequality. Sure. So I think one of the things that motivated me to write this particular paper and to start this dialogue to use the term geographically disadvantaged space when we talk about poverty is that it is so prevalent in the last, I would say, three years, especially to view our nation in terms of rural versus urban. And that's become this dichotomy that's actually false and in many ways, although these places are distinct, they share so much in common in terms of structural factors that have made poverty possible in rural communities and in um, urban communities. And all of that kind of gets papered over and covered up when we just think about things in terms of urban versus rural and urban identity and rural identity, as opposed to taking a look at some of the structural factors that have enabled poverty in these places. And once you start really examining them, you realize how similar the process of becoming poor, of becoming disenfranchised is so similar. Um, and that's what I'm, I'm trying to do in this article by comparing to what look like very distinct communities, Flint, Michigan, and McDowell County, West Virginia, the Southern Coalfields, um, and, uh, and, and drawing a lot of comparisons between what's been going on in these two places and using water as a way to really drive that home. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I use this term geographically disadvantaged spaces, which is sort of a play on terms, uh, a term that geographers have used for a really long time, um, spatial inequality or spatial disparities, which is essentially the concentration of a lack of resources within specific geographic bounds. So a lack of schools or green space or public transportation or appallingly enough, um, you know, uh, potable water, right? And all of these things are confined within these geographic bounds and make a place difficult to live in and are often what contributes to a place being trapped in poverty. Well, so a, a significant part of your paper consists of a really fascinating and frankly quite distressing history 
of both Flint, Michigan and McDowell, West Virginia. I wonder if for listeners who might not be familiar with those places or deeply familiar with those places, uh, especially their their kind of history and how they became what they are today, you, you could kind of talk a little bit about both of them and sort of how the history and kind of historical policy making surrounding those places sort of drove them in the direction that that resulted in the circumstances that exist today. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. So when most people think about Flint, they think about the 2014 water crisis, which of course is where a disastrous decision to change the water source made by a state-appointed emergency financial manager essentially created a, a poisoning situation where tons and tons of of the population were exposed to lead and were also exposed to a variety of bacteria that cause Legionnaire's disease. Um, and this has had long lasting impacts. And of course, once you are exposed to lead, the neurological damage, especially for children, um, of whom there were many who were exposed, was completely devastating. Um, and, and this legacy of this exposure did not just start in 2014. Really, if you go back to the 1930s through the 1960s, you see Flint beginning its financial decline, which is really troubling because at its height, Flint was known as Vehicle City. It was the birthplace of General Motors. It was the site of one of the most famous strikes by the United Auto Workers that won better wages and working conditions for African-American workers and white workers alike. It was a place where the middle class, especially the black middle class, was really able to get a foothold. Um, and of course, it was one of the sites of the arsenal of America, right, um, during World War II. Uh, but as, as time progressed, particularly the period between 1940 and 1960, we start to see an uncoupling between General Motors and the actual city of Flint, meaning its physical boundaries that really laid the foundation for some of the problems that Flint faced. And to understand that, you really, in some ways, need to understand manufacturing. Manufacturing takes tons of water, right? It takes so much water to build a car. Uh, and so when Flint was really establishing itself as a city, it had to supply water not only to its residents, but for this vast network of industrial manufacturers that were within the city's limits that were really a huge part of the city. And so we get to this um, this place where Flint, uh, Flint's water system its industrial users, so GM and, and other supportive manufacturers, use 54% of the water in Flint, but only pay 37% of the water bill. And then in stark contrast, the residents of Flint only use a small percentage of the water, about 30%, but account for about 50% of the revenue. And this is because they 
city has worked out the sweetheart deal with GM saying, you know, you are our economic engine. And so we're going to give you this discount, even though you use most of the water and we've built pipes so that you can use all of this water. You only have to pay us, you know, a fraction of what it actually costs. Right. So in the 1940s, GM starts wanting to build new factories. There's not a lot of room in Flint. It's much cheaper to build these factories in the suburbs. So they start doing that there. Um, and they tell the city of Flint, you know, we're going to move to the suburbs, but, you know, we're, we're not going to close the factories in the city. All, and we're, we're still going to buy water from you. You just need to connect our new suburban factory, you know, to the city water system and we'll still be a customer. Right. In fact, we're adding more water customers to you, our old factories and our new factories. Unfortunately, the factories in the suburbs don't fall in your tax base, but hey, you can't win them all, right? You're still getting a lot of money after uh, out of us. Um, so what happens? They move the factories to the suburbs. They close the factories in the city, right? And they are buying water, right, from Flint for the new suburban factories, but they're still buying it at the discounted rate. Uh, and Flint is not recouping any extra tax revenue because, GM has moved outside its city limits. So now the city is burdened with all of this physical infrastructure that's really old because GM has been around for a very long time that was meant to supply these big factories that it doesn't have within its city limits anymore. And it's become poorer because it just lost a huge commercial revenue base. Um, and this then starts the slow decline of Flint, right? It's getting poorer and poorer as GM is expanding out into the region and the city isn't able to capture any of the money. Um, and this is, of course, completely enabled by the other main thing that allows the for the creation of a geographically disadvantaged space, which is government complicity, right? So obviously GM was an unofficial constituent of the local politicians, right? They said that it was okay to sign this very questionable deal to allow GM to move out into the suburbs, right? To the detriment of the city and her residents. Um, and uh, it also includes the federal government, which while GM is moving into the suburbs are creating all of these policies under the New Deal, particularly um, the uh, FHA, to provide loans to bankroll new developments in the suburbs, right? So they are consciously endorsing this, this divestment from the city into the suburbs, right? And the context of much of this, of course, is entrenched in race and class concerns because if you were if you were African American, if you were low income, your own government deemed you a credit risk and then created their investment policy accordingly. So if your own government <laughs> takes that stance, right? Certainly you can't expect a large corporation to have any sort of loyalty to its supposed birthplace. Well, and so, I mean, this story is so powerful and one that I hadn't heard told in that way before, but even more so the story you tell about McDowell County, West Virginia, which is both really unusual and interesting and also really troubling in, as you point out, 
in some really similar ways, in some really different ways, but in ways that sort of resonate with the story of Flint. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about McDowell County and sort of the parallels you see to what happened in Flint, Michigan. Yeah, I'm I'm happy to do that. You know, I I joke with my uh, with my students that, uh, you know, GM is is must be so jealous of coal um, because whereas GM was really a, a great model of corporate dominance, you know, coal had it locked down. You know, they created the towns, you know, they didn't have to pander to local politicians because they ran something called a company slate, um, you know, to completely cl- create this closed system where they control everything. So McDowell County, West Virginia is located in the um, the southern corner of the state. Uh, and it it actually at one point was called the free state of McDowell because it had a, a really significant African-American population. And part of the reason for this was, was very intentional. So the way that coal works, it's an extractive industry. It's a natural resource. So it, it's not everywhere. It's located right along specific mountain ranges, right? And coal deposits. So coal companies would identify where these deposits are, then construct the actual, um, mine entrances, right? Make sure that the rail lines were built out there so they could take the coal all the way out into like steel mills and and other manufacturing sites. Uh, And then they would construct the town so that they could get some workers to mine all this great coal. And then they would go out and find workers to populate these towns, right? And in doing so, a lot of these companies hoped to create what was called a judicious mixture Um, of workers, right? So essentially quota systems for each ethnicity to prevent them from kind of unionizing, right? Or engaging in any sort of collective pushback. So the coal company controlled everything. They controlled the store. They controlled where you lived, right? They assigned you housing. Uh, They owned the church where you prayed, right? Um, They sometimes even paid you in company scrip, right? Your own um, private uh, wage amount that was only good at the company store. Uh, and sometimes after all of the deductions were taken out for the company doctor, for your uniform, for your lunch bucket, you know, for buying things on credit at the company store, you might actually be in debt to the coal company. Uh, and so they had created this completely closed universe and were able to, as a result of corporate dominance, really get um, the whatever tamp down, I should say, whatever um, pushback or rebellion there would be in terms of the workers. They controlled the politicians, as I said, through the company slate. And of course, they controlled the water system because they built the community after they built the mines. And the water system was actually designed to serve the mine. And it was just sort of incidental that um, they eventually piped it into people's houses, right, to be able to drink this water. Um, And so the town of Gary in McDowell County is one that I, I really like to use as an illustration of how much the coal companies really controlled um, the town and the lasting impact of that. So uh, 
Gary, West Virginia, actually started as a series of coal camps that were owned by uh, U.S. Steel. U.S. Steel, Andrew Carnegie was a huge um, believer in vertical integration. And so he thought a great way to cut his costs um, would be to buy a lot of the raw ingredients. And the main ingredient of making steel is a metallurgical coal. So he bought he bought all these coal mines. He built these communities uh, they actually were overseen by a superintendent who was an appointed official uh, of the subsidiary corporation, uh, the U.S. Coke and Coal Company, USSC. Uh, and, you know, they uh, they ran these um, these towns as a almost byproduct of having to run the mines. They engaged in the judicious mixture, which is why. Uh, Gary always had a significant African-American population. It was the site of the first NAACP chapter in West Virginia. Um, it has this really rich uh, l- legacy um, within the state. Uh, and, uh, you know, they kept these towns going until it was, again, much like GM, no longer profitable. So, you know, in 1969, the international pressures are really starting to impact the U.S. steel industry. And suddenly, uh, for the first time since its inception, Gary is suddenly being pushed to become an independent town. Uh, And by 1971, they fully incorporated the town. Um, It's got its first elected officials um, in a show of, you know, of, of real generosity, <laughs> in case you can't tell, that's a sarcastic, that's uh, my effort to be sarcastic. Uh, the U.S. Uh, Steel gives Gary a bunch of buildings, including some old school buildings, some old uh, office buildings, and um, the water system and the wastewater system, and then uh, $20,000 as a holdover, right, as sort of a severance pay or, you know, honestly, a divorce settlement uh, to hold hold the town over until they can start generating tax revenues, which they've never had to do before because it was essentially a company town. It was an asset owned by U.S. Steel, right? It was Truman from The Truman Show. Um, so, so, you know, one of the concerns that people were raising in the newspapers, the residents of these towns, was this is great. I guess you're leaving us here. How long are these mines going to be open? And U.S. Steel was very evasive about it. So what happens by 1986? All of the mines have closed in the area, right? So suddenly you have this town in the middle of nowhere, right, that had a one industry town because it was designed intentionally to be a one industry town with all of this crumbling infrastructure because the company only put in enough money to keep things running, right? Uh, And suddenly they're on their own. And then to add um, insult to injury, when the mines close, U.S. Steel takes with them, of course, all of the all of the white collar workers who are doing important things like being the engineers who maintain the water system, right? So this town was literally abandoned, right, by its former corporate master, right, which was its entire reason for existing. Um, And to this day, both Flint and 
Gary are facing a number of drinking water issues, right? Flint, we know the lead crisis, but in Gary, they've been under continuous boil water advisories, right? Which is where there's so much bacteria in your water that you cannot potentially drink it when it comes out of the tap. Um, you have to boil it in order to get rid of whatever potential infectious things might be living in your water. Now, Boil water advisories, I should say, or sometimes I don't want anyone to panic. They happen if a pipe bursts, they tell you to boil your water as as a just a precaution, right? But if you are under a boil water advisory for several months, which has been the case in Gary, that means that your water is never safe. It is not a temporary pipe issue that might have brought in contaminants. It is never safe. So you have to keep doing this, right? Uh, and so that's that's alarming. <laughs> that's a really alarming thing to have to face, right, in the United States of America. It is um, dissonant. <laughs> it is cognitively dissonant, right, when compared to, you know, talks of drones, right, or glamping, right? You don't think of, of families who don't consistently have access to safe water. And then when you realize that these families are also consistently poor and often people of color, right? It makes you question what we are doing as a nation. Well, so in your paper, you use water and sewage systems as a lens for sort of outlining or identifying and thinking about geographically disadvantaged spaces. Do you think that that water and sewage systems work as a good proxy for other kinds of infrastructure deficiencies that might also be present in the kinds of areas you're interested in studying? Definitely. I use primarily water um, because as a colleague of mine once said in West Virginia, I can get people to pay for water. I can't, I can't get them to pay for something that could be solved with an outhouse, um, which is a fair point. Um, but water is definitely a proxy. It is the, if you will prefer, if you will allow me a small joke, the canary in the coal mine, right? For sort of the economic distress of a community, because if you don't have potable water, you are going to have businesses leave, you are going to have people leave, you are going to have schools that are closed because they don't have drinking fountains that are safe. Um, and that causes what's called an infrastructure death spiral, uh, which is where the uh, there is a crisis, the crisis causes people to leave, the leaving then prevents the locality from having the money, right, which usually comes from a combination of uh, water bills, right, and like municipal reserves or other mus municipal debt um, options like bonds, right, from fixing the problem, right, um, because they're literally hemorrhaging their tax base. Uh, and then this just causes the problem to get worse and worse and worse. More and more breaks happen. They can barely fix the breaks, let alone reinvest in overhauling the system the way that it needs to be. So it's it's the death knell. Um, and oftentimes the same communities that are you know trying to engage in some form of economic development, like getting high speed internet, um, you know, or tr trying to figure out if they could get some um, opportunity zone money. Uh, are the same ones that are having water problems and trying to do one without the other is impossible. So, you know, bringing in broadband internet um, when you don't have running water that's potable, it is not helping that community. 
Well, I, mean, I, I got to say, in, in my experience, there's a tendency for a lot of people to try to kind of naturalize these kinds of scenarios and present the situation in places like Flint and McDowell and other places as if it's kind of an inevitable function of the geographic location in which they are or the historical circumstances that arose around them. And I feel like you're paper and the narrative in your paper really pushes back against and dispels that kind of naturalizing um, impulse. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and maybe like why it is that sort of the idea that, oh, well, these communities ought to just kind of fix themselves and kind of reform in order to solve these problems isn't isn't really realistic. Sure. I think part of the problem in ignoring the consequences and the actual history is assuming that this is something that just happened that cannot be fixed when the reality is it can be fixed. Um, It can't be fixed perfectly. And Flint is never going to be vehicle city again. Right. But Flint can be a small sustainable place if there are resources that are put into Flint to help them actually engage in economic transition planning that also, as a part of it, right, addresses sustainable water infrastructure, right? I mean, Flint's problem is that it is carrying, I mean, Flint's problem prior to the web, to the lead crisis, and this problem is still continuing, is this enormous physical infrastructure that no longer comports with its current economic reality, right? So it has to figure out a way to adapt and to ameliorate that difference in order to become a sustainable place. Um, And I, I think that is the same problem for these rural communities that are still struggling with these bequeathed Um, infrastructure systems, right, Uh, that don't necessarily comport to the realities of their specific geographic place anymore. And for every person on the East Coast who says, you know, or the, you know, who says, why should we concern ourselves with this? These folks should just move elsewhere and make their lives elsewhere. The reality is it's sort of a test case for what we are going to have to do as a nation, right? Because climate change is going to significantly impact the way that certain cities that are now considered, you know, the, you know, the, I would say like the urban centers, the vibrant places, right, in our nation are going to be massively impacted by climate change. And we're going to see a shift in those places too. And we should be considering as a nation, how do we create a sort of a balanced fiscal portfolio for making water infrastructure sustainable in all of these different places, right? And how do we help small places, medium places, you know, large places sort of transition as our economy continues to evolve and change, right? Because I always joke, if you if you had told a coal miner in the 1950s that uh, that one day West Virginia was going to be a very economically distressed nation with an incredibly, uh, sorry, depressed uh, state with an incredibly low labor participation rate, Um, you know, he would look at you like you were crazy because he would say, do you see the construction boom that's going on? You can't make steel without coal, you know? And and I think of that often um, when we think of the tech sector, right, of 
you know, of saying, you know, one day maybe these tech jobs might not be what we think they are. And, you know, someone in San Francisco, right, you know, having a green smoothie saying, are you mad? Right. Like I, you know, I have so many job offers every day. I'm constantly recruited by headhunters, but it is this, this feeling that everything is really temporary. Um, and so we have to really think about it could happen to us at any moment. So what is our long-term strategy? And the fact is we can't live without water. So why don't we start with thinking about how water and economic transition can sync up, right? Especially since these are great test cases for sustainable water infrastructure development and take those lessons and then start applying them, right, in um, in like arid re- regions of the country, right? Phoenix is supposed to be the hottest place in America, you know, by 2050, right? So maybe this is a great way to start thinking about and incubating technologies and implementing them so, you know, we can help Phoenix, which is a growing place for now, right? That we could potentially help Washington, D.C., which is going to be intensely impacted by climate change. So it's all part of this really national narrative. You can't carve out these geographically disadvantaged spaces because we're all always at risk of becoming a geographically disadvantaged space if we don't counter decades of corporate and government divestment with active policy and investment, right, to sort of act as a counterbalance. So, I mean, I wonder if you could identify a couple particular policy changes or or policy moves that you think would be beneficial in places like Flint and McDowell County, um, specifically in relation to your suggestion in the paper that a kind of quote unquote Green New Deal concept might be a way of sort of reframing how we think about these places and maybe think more broadly about infrastructure policy. Sure. So it's been almost a year since the Green New Deal was sort was first really um, placed into our collective consciousness. Um, and it was supposed to be a joint initiative to address, uh, you know, uh, climate change in terms of, of counteracting, uh, you know, our carbon footprint and our emissions, our greenhouse gas emissions, but also an attempt to create much like the original New Deal, sort of a jobs creation program uh, to sort of incorporate both displaced workers from the fossil fuel industries, as well as just other disenfranchised workers into a new economy, right, created by green jobs. So uh, at various points, the Green New Deal has also included little pots of funding for improving infrastructure, right, sort of much like the the New Deal's, you know, Public Works Administration efforts to build bridges. Um, so that's always kind of been in the mix. Um, my hope has always been for the Green New Deal that it is more than just a jobs creation program, which is helpful, but it is not a place-based strategy to help transition geographically disadvantaged spaces, right? It, it is great if you can deploy an army of folks to dig up pipes in Flint and to um, you know, to replace lead pipes with, uh, you know, with modern technology to build, you know, uh, stormwater bins and everything else that you really need. But it is 
not helpful once that project is over and those folks leave. And, you know, Flint has gone from, you know, over 200,000 folks at its height to, you know, 99,000 now and dwindling every day. Um, how is how is that municipality going to pay to upkeep these new, amazing, beautiful water systems, right? So the Green New Deal has to include some form of economic transition for these places that are otherwise going to get new infrastructure that they, they can't maintain and they're going to continue getting trapped in this cycle of poverty. Um, and so so I, I don't think anyone has directly addressed that yet, although they're, they're on the grassroots level, particularly in Appalachia, have been a lot of organizations looking critically at how do we build sustainable local economies? And their hope is certainly to connect that to larger federal policy initiatives like the Green New Deal. And that's actually, in some ways, one of the beautiful things that could connect a place like Flint, where there are water activists, and places like southern West Virginia, where there are a lot of water rights activists, right, to sort of trade resources, right? Trade what's been effective, where have the roadblocks been, you know, even trading stories of how poor places often fail to meet the guidelines for getting the existing funding sources um, for from the federal government for fixing these types of problems, right? And instead, it takes something like Essex County, New Jersey, bailing out Newark, right? Um, in order for Newark's lead crisis to get the the funding it needs to start making changes, right? Um, so I think that that's sort of the larger policy narrative that we really need to investigate this, you know, this idea that's been around forever, right? That like we need to stand together collectively in order to ameliorate these problems and that we're all always just a few steps away from true disaster. Well, so Priya, in closing, in your paper, you observe that you know racism for lack of a you know better way of putting it exacerbated or maybe even directly caused many of the problems that are currently confronting places like Flint and McDowell County West Virginia um i wonder if you think that that is still potentially a problem today and whether there's a risk that a similar kind of, or maybe a kind of modern version of the same kind of racist policy could be a problem for the Green New Deal and its implementation in relation to these people and the communities that that live there? And if so, how we might go about um, mitigating that problem or ideally uh, avoiding it altogether? Sure. So the impressive thing about the Green New Deal as proposed as a resolution is that it does explicitly name uh, racial justice as an objective. It does name that this is a problem that is particularly experienced in communities of color and low-income communities, which are sometimes the same communities. Um, So I think the fact that there is an explicit acknowledgement puts you that much closer to creating policy solutions that really take that um, active anti-racist objective seriously. Um, Now, one way in which I think the legacy still exists 
is in the reliance on municipal bonds for funding lots of infrastructure projects, including uh, drinking water systems, right? So the, you know, it used to be that redlining, right, made you, uh, made you ineligible uh, for certain funds, right? Redlining being explicitly race-based. And now in many ways, municipal bond funding has sort of replaced um, redlining. It's not explicitly racist the same way that the Hulk maps were, but it sort of builds off the legacy of of a place's creditworthiness, right? And if you've been steeped in this um, economic decline, right, like a place like Flint has, right, in part because of racist policies and the municipal bond rating agency is just taking a look at your books and the amount of times that you've defaulted and whether or not the state has placed you on um, essentially financial probation with this emergency fiscal manager, you're going to get a very, very low bond rating, right? That's going to prevent you from effectively raising money for your new pipes or your school or anything else you need, right? But all, that bond rating, what it doesn't acknowledge, right, is that all of that stuff that goes into the bond rating is really built on um, a history, a legacy of racist policies. Uh, and, and so we've got to think critically about our reliance on bonds and how that impacts the way that we fund infrastructure, right? So like right now, there isn't anything that says if you have a low bond rating that, you know, there are these other sources that are available to you. Um, it just says you have a low bond rating, you're a risky investment, we'll try to help where we can. You might still be able to get, you know, this pot of money from HUD and maybe depending on how bad the bond rating is, some other money from the state revolving fund for drinking water projects. Um, but it, it, it really doesn't kind of explicitly address that funding gap, um, which is, you know, which is, again, just built off the, the legacy of, of those initial racist policies. So I think working to undo some of that in our dependence on bond ratings um, is important. And part of that is that that dependence on bond ratings reflects also a belief that the private market is going to be able to help dig these geographically disadvantaged spaces out of their particular problem, right? Um, and I think it is a problem that's been created by corporate abandonment and government disinterest, and it can only really be remedied by significant overcorrection by the government, ra rather than relying on the private market to, to fill that void. Awesome. Well, Priya, thanks so much for coming on the show. I, I learned a lot reading your paper and even more talking to you about it. And I look forward to reading the final version. Great. Thank you. Where my parents were born 
And there's a backwards old town that's often remembered So many times that my memories are worn And Daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County Down by the Green River where paradise lay Well, I'm sorry, my son, but you're too late in asking Mr. Peabody's coal train has hauled it away Well, sometimes we travel right down the Green River To the abandoned old prison down by Avery Hill Where the air smell like snakes and we'd shoot with our pistols But empty pop bottles was all we would kill And Daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County Down by the Green River where paradise lay Well, I'm sorry, my son, but you're too late in asking Mr. Peabody's cold train has hauled it away And the coal company came with the world's largest shovel And they tortured the timber and stripped all the land Well, they dug for their coal till the land was forsaken Then they rode it all down as the progress of man And Daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County Down by the Green River where paradise lay well, I'm sorry, my son, but you're too late in asking. Mr. Peabody's coal train has hauled it away. When I die, let my ashes float down the Green River. Let my soul roll on up to the Rochester Dam. I'll be halfway to heaven with paradise waiting. Just five miles away from wherever I am And Daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County Down by the Green River where paradise lays Well, I'm sorry, my son, but you're too late in asking Mr. Peabody's cold train has hauled it away oh,